I invite you to take your Bibles again and turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 920. Our text is just the first three verses, but we'll read the whole chapter to see it in its context. Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, And there is a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to tell you a little bit about a friend of mine. He's encouraging, positive, thoughtful, faithful, and sacrificial, an all-around really good friend. He's such a great guy that he was even nominated for a title once, the title of Most Unlike His Last Name. What kind of a last name gets you that title? Savage. His last name is Savage, which, as an adjective, is about the last word you you would use to describe this friend. He's the most unsavage savage you'll ever meet. 
now to the book of Jonah. If all the children's stories and cartoons are any indication, this book is a story about Jonah. Jonah running away from God. Jonah getting tossed overboard. Jonah getting swallowed by a great fish. Jonah getting vomited onto dry land. And Jonah preaching in Nineveh. It's all about Jonah, right? I beg to differ. In fact, I'm going to propose that the book of Jonah could be nominated for a very similar title to that as my friend. The title, The Bible Book Most Unlike Its Name. How so? Because this isn't ultimately a story about what Jonah did. It's a story about the Lord. The Lord at work in and through Jonah. Kids, when you get home tonight, grab a Bible and read through the book of Jonah and count whose name appears more often, Jonah's or the Lord's. The Lord is not hidden behind the scenes here as he is in the book of Esther. No, in the book of Jonah, he's front and center in every chapter, yet how easy it is for us to gloss right over what he's doing. This book is not about Jonah. It's about God's heart for the lost and his desire to see them repent. And Jonah is his instrument for revealing that. In this series through the book of Jonah, I want to highlight for us how the Lord is at work and what he's teaching Jonah, and ultimately his, all of his people at every step along the way. We'll begin that journey today by seeing how in these first three verses, the Lord commits his reluctant servant to the mission field. We'll look at that theme statement in three parts. First, the setting of the commission. Second, the content of the commission. And third, the response to the commission. Let's get into the passage and see how this is revealed. In the first verse, we are given the setting of the commission. The first thing for us to see here is how the book starts. It doesn't start with Jonah, but with the word of the Lord. In this way, the opening sentence sets the tone for the entire book. Jonah is definitely a main character, but he's not the main subject. He's only the object of what the Lord is doing and saying through him. In fact, we're told very little about Jonah as a person. We need to turn to 2 Kings to learn more about Jonah. Chapter 14, verses 23 through 27, is the only other place where Jonah shows up in the Bible. It reads, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Here we gain some insight into the setting Jonah prophesied in. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. This makes him a successor of sorts to Elijah and Elisha, who also prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. In many ways, Elijah and Elisha were alike. They both performed miracles in Israel and in neighboring lands. But they were dissimilar in an important way. 
Elijah prophesied of coming judgment and called the people to repentance. But the only recorded prophecies of Elisha are ones of provision and military success. Jonah seems to be ministering in the same vein as Elisha, for we just read that he prophesied of military victory for Jeroboam too. But here's a question we should ask. Why did God promise military success through Elisha and Jonah when he had been pronouncing judgment for sin through Elijah? Although some kings in the north were less evil than others, none of them repented of the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and Israel continued to engage in false worship through the golden calves at Dan and Bethel throughout every king's reign. So what gives? Why is God allowing Israel to succeed militarily? Well, the answer was given to us in the verse we read from 2 Kings. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel and that there was none to help Israel, so he provided relief for them. God had mercy on his people because he loved them. It's as simple as that. We need to take a quick peek at the enemies that had been afflicting Israel to set the stage for Jonah's commission. Israel had two main foes at this time in history, Syria to the north and Assyria to the northeast. The books of First and Second Kings record that the nation of Syria to Israel's north had been a large thorn in Israel's day and Israel's side since the days of Ahab. As for Assyria, the Bible doesn't mention them until a generation after Jeroboam II. In 2 Kings 15, we read that the king Menahem paid a heavy tribute to Pul, the king of Assyria, to get him to take his armies away from Israel. But archaeologists have found evidence that Israel and Assyria had faced off long before the days of Menahem. A pillar found in their region shows Jeroboam II's great-grandfather, King Jehu, bowing down before an Assyrian king and paying him tribute. So how did Jeroboam II get out from under the thumbs of these enemies? The short answer is that the Lord arranged it. Archaeological evidence indicates that Assyria had recently crushed Syria, shortly before Jeroboam II began to reign. But Assyria itself soon went into a period of decline because of internal power struggles and famine. The Lord weakened both Syria and Assyria which gave Israel relief and allowed them to take back the land that once belonged to them in the days of Solomon. Jonah was privileged to have a front row seat to God blessing his chosen people, even though they were not living faithfully before him. Now back to Jonah. Why are we told so little about him in this book of prophecy? Besides being an indication that he's not the main subject of the book, I believe there's another important reason why we're told so little about him. We're not told much about Jonah because we're supposed to see right through Jonah. God preserved this account as part of scripture, not so that the legend of Jonah would be preserved, but to be a mirror for the Jews to see a picture of themselves and for us to see a picture of Christ. In the book before us, Jonah represents Israel as an entire nation. And as we follow what happens to him, we see a picture of what has already happened with Israel what is going to happen to them in the future, and how Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. So, how does Jonah represent the nation of Israel? In order to see that clearly, we need to take a quick step back and review God's purpose for the nation of Israel. The first hint of God's plan for Israel is found in Genesis, in God's original call to Abraham in chapter 12, where he says in verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." This promise is repeated throughout the history of Israel, most notably through their leaders Moses, Joshua, and David. But David's son, King Solomon, perhaps gives the fullest picture of what Israel's purpose as a nation was to be. During the dedication of the temple, he prays in 1 Kings 8, verses 41 through 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake... For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to do, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Abraham and the nation of Israel were not singled out by God because he was giving up on the rest of the world and was choosing just one people for his own. No, God singled out Abraham and his seed because it was to be through them that salvation would come to the nations. Through the verses we read, we can see why God chose Israel to be his people and why he placed them where he did. If they obeyed his commandments and worshiped him alone, then they would be blessed by him. And God's grace could be channeled to all the nations through them. God's desire was that all the nations of the earth would come to know him through the faithful witness of his chosen people, Israel. This missionary mindset of God is made clear by Isaiah, who came after Jonah, in chapter 43, verses 10 through 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. The people of Israel clearly had their own great commission to be God's witnesses to the nations around them. And verse 2 will show that Jonah, as a picture of Israel receives the same calling. And so in our second point, we see the content of the commission. As a representative of Israel, Jonah has received the same call as the nation has, to be a witness of the Lord to the nations. Hold on, you say. He's only called to go to Nineveh, not to the nations. Yes. But at that time, Nineveh was truly a great city, as the text says. It was the largest city in the known world only to be eclipsed by Babylon in decades to come. Nineveh was not just some random city that God sent to Jonah, but the largest concentration of people on the earth. Nineveh was the military capital of Assyria, and even though the nation itself was in a period of decline, they were still the top nation at that time. What better place to represent all the Gentile peoples of the world than the city with the most people and the most power? And what is the reason that God gives for sending Jonah to them? The end of verse 2 tells us that the evil of Nineveh has gone up before the Lord. The Ninevites certainly were a wicked people. 
the Assyrians were known for their brutality in war, and the prophet Nahum would later call Nineveh a bloody city. There was certainly plenty of evil going up before the God that made him call, call Jonah to cry out against them. But the Hebrew word translated as evil in verse 2 is a very interesting Hebrew word. A word that is used repeatedly throughout this book. It can mean evil or wickedness, as translated here, but it also can mean calamity, disaster, or suffering. Certainly, there is an element of evil in Nineveh that God sees, but could there also be a sense of their suffering that has gone up before God? The end of chapter 4 of Jonah indicates that this very well could be, for in verse 11, God says that he pities Nineveh. Nineveh would soon enough be judged for her sins, but first, God wanted to give them an opportunity to repent. This creates a clear parallel between Israel and Nineveh. We saw earlier that God had pity on wicked Israel when he saw their suffering, and he delivered them from their affliction. So too, God has pity on the evil city of Nineveh when he sees them suffering through civil war and famine. And really, the same applies to all the nations as well. As stated earlier, God has a missionary heart that yearns for all to come to know and love him. Listen to how Ezekiel says it in chapter 18, verses 21 through 23. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? I hope you're seeing the clear ties to the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us right before he ascended into heaven. God's heart for the lost people of this world has never changed. The only thing that has changed from the old covenant to the new is the way that Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God. Let us never make the mistake of thinking that God is only a missionary God in our new covenant period. Our God never changes. He is the same today as he was yesterday, and he will continue to be the same tomorrow. We must ask ourselves if we share this missionary heart of God. Do we take pleasure in the downfall and death of our enemies? Or do our hearts yearn to see them come to faith in Christ? How about geographical limitations? Are we content to see the church flourish close to home with maybe a nearby church plant in a neighboring town from time to time? Or do we long for the gospel to go forth in secular cities like Montreal and Quebec City? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the mission churches should have priority over the local church. But I know that my own tendency is to prioritize the local church because new mission fields are very daunting. Brothers and sisters, we should be praying that the gospel would go forth in the darkest of our cities and be watching for opportunities to take part in that work. Let's quickly review Jonah's scenario before we move to our third point. Israel has been through decades of power struggle with Syria and Assyria, but now both of those nations are weak and vulnerable. By the word of the Lord through Jonah, Jeroboam II has been able to take back from those nations much of Israel's former territory, and Israel finally feels like it caught a break. But instead of telling Jonah to prophesy that Israel will continue to expand and conquer Nineveh, 
the Lord tells him to go to Nineveh itself and preach. To Jonah, this must have seemed absurd. Why would God do this? Why would God want Jonah to preach to the very city that has been threatening Israel's existence? We know that it's because God takes no pleasure in the suffering and death of his image bearers, no matter how wicked they might be. He desires for them to repent and live. But apparently, Jonah doesn't see it that way, as shown by his response to the commission. Jonah wants nothing to do with this calling from the Lord. He was happy to prophesy of Israel's future success, but prophesying to an enemy nation is not something he's willing to do. Here again, we see how Jonah is representative of the nation of Israel. For just as Israel abandoned their commission to be witnesses to the nations, so Jonah abandons his. Instead of living faithfully before the Lord and being a blessing to the nations around them, Israel worshiped false gods and lived disobedient lives. So too, Jonah chose the route of disobedience rather than being faithful to his calling to go to Nineveh. Notice the use of language in our text. God's command to Jonah was to arise and go, but Jonah rises and goes down, down, down. In one sense, his going down is literally true. He had to go down from the hills of Israel to the coastal city of Joppa, and then he had to go down from the dock into the belly of the ship. But I think the use of the word down is spiritually purposeful. Jonah's going down is indicative of his spiritual condition. He is disobeying and become more spiritually distant from God. In our text, we see that Jonah attempts to flee from the presence of the Lord by boarding a ship for Tarshish. The location of Tarshish is not known for sure, but it's really not that important for the narrative. It is thought to be either in present-day Spain, Italy, or in Europe, or Tunisia in North Africa. Or it could technically just be translated as the open sea. I think what we should take away from this is that Jonah doesn't really care where the ship is going. He just wants out. The phrase, away from the presence of the Lord, is also interesting. Based on how much his prayer in chapter 2 reflects the language of the Psalms, it's hard to believe that Jonah thinks he can actually go to a place where God won't be able to find him. As God's prophet, surely he was familiar with Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, which say, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. More likely, Jonah is just trying to get as far away from the land of God's people as possible, so that God finds it more convenient to assign this missionary task to a different person and a different prophet. Maybe he thinks that his rebellion will disqualify him from being a prophet of the Lord. I think that this is something we can relate to as well. How many of the young men here have, been given, have given less than their best in catechism so that the elders don't ask them if they've considered pursuing the ministry? How many young moms keep silent during Bible study because they fear if that they say too much, they'll be asked to lead next year? How many of all of us think that we're unqualified to speak to our neighbors about Christ because we're not smart enough to answer all of their questions? Brothers and sisters in the Lord, when we avoid our calling to be witnesses of God's great love for the lost, we are disobeying the command from our God to be lights in this world. 
So why was Israel so slow to be a witness to the nations around them? And why was Jonah so adverse to being a missionary to Nineveh? It seems that Israel and Jonah developed an extremely narrow view of their election as God's people. A level of pride crept into their hearts, and they began to believe that they had been chosen by God not to be witnesses, but to be a privileged people. They saw the nations around them only as instruments by which God served his purposes with them. If they needed correction, then they were chastised in defeat. But if they were deserving of blessing, then they were given the plunder of victory. They had completely lost sight of their purpose of witnessing to the world around them. Jonah himself makes this clear in chapter 4 after God relents from punishing Nineveh. He says in verse 2, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah was happy to prophesy when it meant God would have mercy on Israel and allowed their borders to expand. But he does not want to see God's grace extending to Israel's enemies. In Jonah's eyes, the only thing that should be poured out on Nineveh is justice and wrath, not mercy. He wants to keep God's steadfast love, patience, mercy, and grace all to himself and his fellow Israelites. How about us? Have we let pride blur our vision for missions? Do we treat God's blessings as deserved privileges or as opportunities to bless others? If we're honest with ourselves, I think we can all see that we're no different than the Israelites. Just like them, it's easy for us to think that we have it pretty good. How easy it is to say, God loves us and blesses us because we live so much better lives than everyone else. Would we like to see those who are most opposed to us come to faith in Christ? Do we want God's mercy to pour out on staunch atheists, progressive far-left liberals, and extremist Muslims? Mercy that would lead to their repentance and salvation? Or are we happy to see them on the road to hell because that's what they deserve? How arrogant of us if that's the case. How quickly we forget that apart from God's grace, we would be on the same road as them. We desperately need to see the same thing that the Israelites and Jonah needed to see. We should take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And God's blessing on us should drive us to be witnesses to the world of how great our God is. So where does this leave us? We've seen that Israel failed in their commission to be God's witnesses to the nations. We've seen that Jonah failed in his commission to be witnesses to the Ninevites. And we recognize that we fail to be the faithful witnesses that we're called to be. Is there any hope that God's name will be proclaimed to the lost peoples of the earth? It seems not as far as it depends on men. But there is hope. There is hope because of one man who was also God. There is hope because of that God, one God-man did not fail in his mission here on earth. Listen to what that man, our Lord Jesus Christ, said as he begins his high priestly prayer in the first five verses of John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And what was the work that God gave him to do? It's the very work that Isaiah prophesied of in chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, sees, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Christ's mission on earth was to be crushed for our sins, to make one ultimate sacrifice for our wickedness, and then to be raised in glory on the third day. And he endured all of that because he knew that we could never bear it ourselves. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, our missionary calling is not a burden that we have to bear on our own in order to earn favor with the Father. No, it is a privilege that we get to partake in, all because Christ has carried the burden for us. Unlike Israel, we ourselves are not the conduit through which God's grace flows out to the nations. Our witness does not depend on how good we are, but on how good Christ was. Christ and his Holy Spirit are now the fount from which grace flows out to the world. Listen to how beautifully Isaiah puts this in chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall become to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. When we witness to the world, we have the pleasure of pointing them to the finished work of the light of the world. And when we fail to live up to our calling, we can rest assured that there is forgiveness to be found in Christ. God's love for us does not change depending on how well we are carrying out his will for, our, for us. God's love for us is everlasting and unchanging because he loves us in Christ. Dear people of God, if you are frightened by the thought of being God's witness to the world, take comfort in the fact that it's not up to you. When you speak the words of truth, God's spirit does all the work in the hearts of his elect. And if you are here today and have not put your faith in the one who completed your work for you, I call you to turn to him in repentance and faith. Do not go another day without the promise of eternal life through faith in Christ. The Lord committed his own son to the mission field as a sacrifice for all of his people's sins. Praise God that Christ is the one who perfectly fulfilled all that was laid out for him to do. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. Grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, so we may gratefully share it with others and ever give glory to you. Remove all pride and fear from our hearts so that we may never be ashamed of the gospel. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.